Hey everybody, it's Josh Barrow. Welcome to another episode of Serious Trouble. This week's episode is free and full for all subscribers, so we hope you enjoy it. But we also hope that you will join us anyway as a paying subscriber to Serious Trouble and help make this show possible. If you do that, you can join the comments section where there will surely be a lively discussion about the hour-long episode that you're about to listen to. You can go to SeriousTrouble.show and for $6 a month or $60 a year, you can become a paying subscriber, get every full episode, more than 40 episodes a year, and get the opportunity to join that community, join our interesting discussions, and be part of what makes it possible for Ken, Sarah, and me to bring this show to you every week. Thanks for listening. Hi, it's Ken White. And it's Josh Barrow, and this is Serious Trouble. We are taping this week's episode early in the week. It's 10 a.m. on Monday, Eastern Time. And we're watching Georgia like I think all of you are. We're expecting some big news out of Georgia, the state-level investigation there that uh, Fulton County District Attorney Fonnie Willis is conducting into Donald Trump's efforts to interfere with the vote count in Georgia in the 2020 election. And so the thing is, you know, the it's likely an indictment is going to come this week. It's possible an indictment has already come when you're listening to this. So we're not going to spend a ton of time on Georgia right now. We're watching that. And we're expecting to put out another episode after, if, you know, if and when the, we have an indictment document to look at in Georgia. Uh, so I just want you all to know we're watching that. We're not ignoring that it's happening. I do want to talk, Ken, about one thing that is not as time sensitive, which is that uh, uh Donald Trump was posting on Truth Social about Jeff Duncan, who was at the time of the 2020 election, he was lieutenant governor of Georgia, um, and he was uncooperative with Trump's efforts to interfere in the election. Uh, He's no longer the lieutenant governor. He didn't even hold on in the way that Brad Raffensperger did. But so Donald Trump was tweeting about the fact that uh, Jeff Duncan is reported to be about to testify before that grand jury in Fulton County. And he said in that post that Jeff Duncan should not testify. Uh, Are you supposed to do that? (sighs) <sighs> Sarah, can we get a goat scream, please? <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, today, uh, former President Donald Trump is out there generating law school exam questions for us by putting out things that expressly attempt to persuade a witness not to testify and insult and abuse the witness in a way that may be considered to be harassment or possibly even rise to the level of corrupt persuasion. So um, this isn't a federal case, so it's not a federal witness tampering charge, but would not surprise me if that creates some serious risk of a Georgia witness tampering charge. And it certainly brings up the question of where is the line between permissible First Amendment expression that this investigation is bogus and people shouldn't countenance it, or on the other hand, singling out a particular witness and attempting to persuade them not to testify. So uh, it would not surprise me if that results in some consequences to Trump in the eventual uh, Georgia case. And Josh, uh, we will be getting back to Georgia. We've done some prep work on it and done some digging into um, what the Georgia RICO statute is and how it's used. And I just want to say in advance, wow, it's uh, it's some weird stuff. So it turns out, you know, we always talk about it's not RICO, but in Georgia, it almost always is RICO. It's like how Matt Levine is talking about how everything is securities fraud. In Georgia, everything is RICO. Uh, everything appears to be RICO. There's some sample cases that will surprise you. Yeah. 
So just one more thing on that Jeff Duncan thing. I mean, the rest of the post is mostly sort of shit talking and, you know, he, you know, he lost because I didn't endorse him. The rest of that stuff sort of looked to me like that was classic uh, First Amendment protected speech, even if it was really stupid. The one key part of it is saying that he shouldn't testify, right? Does it matter that Jeff Duncan is unlikely to be impressed at all by Donald Trump saying that he shouldn't testify? Does your witness tampering need to be likely to be effective? Well, Josh, frankly, this happened 20 minutes ago, and you might not uh, believe it, but I've not yet had an opportunity to deeply research Georgia law (laughs) on witness tampering. However, I I will say that you're right. There's clearly some area of protected First Amendment speech where you could say, you know, it's wrong for anyone to cooperate in this unjust investigation, or it's wrong for anyone to testify against people about this type of unjust crime or whatever it is, versus singling out a particular witness against you. And uh, the difference is probably going to be whether or not it's seen to have a corrupt or improper motive, and also whether or not uh, it crosses over into explicit terms. I think it here it explicitly says don't testify to a mm-hmm. specified known witness. So <laughs> I, I think um, I think that's kind of playing with uh, you know that's going to make the initial appearance in Georgia and the terms of his release and some of those things more exciting. Mm-hmm. Well, we look forward to that. Uh, let's talk about the proceedings in Washington, D.C. before Judge Tanya Chutkin. Um, this is the federal indictment of Donald Trump uh, for essentially trying to steal the 2020 election. And the first big issue that you had the parties in court arguing over was a protective order, uh, the terms of an order that, that would set out what Donald Trump is allowed to do with information that he receives in the discovery process in this case. Uh, and so what did we see about how Judge Chutkin was handling the two parties? What did, what did we look learn about how this case is likely to go from this this first substantive hearing. She's very no-nonsense. She's pretty much a model of what you hope a federal judge would be like. Uh, you know, be, being a federal judge, being lifetime appointment, very little accountability, huge amount of power can lead judges to be sort of imperious and autocratic, or it can lead them to be sort of confident and experienced and no nonsense she seems to be into the the no nonsense that we that we want to set the table a little bit this again was a dispute over a protective order so that's something that governs how you can distribute information and documents you get during discovery it's not a general gag order that was not yet the issue however much trump was trying to make it the issue and provoke it into being the issue through attacking Mike Pence and and things like that. This was all about the parties not being able to decide what limits there would be on Trump taking things he was given in discovery and publishing them or information from them. And uh, to date, briefly suffering uh, Judge Tanya Chotkin uh, (laughs) said that uh, basically she started out saying that he has First Amendment rights, uh, but they're not absolute. Uh, She started to analyze the First Amendment uh, approach to a protective order. And now this just by itself is a big change from how things usually work. Because as we've talked about before, this is one of those kinds of orders that has First Amendment implications that just get ignored. Right. Uh, normally, just to remind people, Ken's, Ken's position essentially is that there are things that judges routinely do all the time with protective orders that are unconstitutional and that it hasn't been you know, litigated properly. I mean, it's, you know, like I'm, we're not trying to be Alan Dershowitz here just because 
Ken feels that the legal regime should be different doesn't mean that it is different. Um, but that's that's where Ken is starting from here. Is that, that fair to say? Exactly. And there are a few cases that even say this. Oh, wait, by the way, protective orders are subject to the Constitution, just like anything else. So Judge Chutkin here took it seriously and analyzed that and, and talked about it. And where she wound up was displeasing both parties. The government had sort of taken the standard government position, which is, protective orders get issued all the time. Why are we even talking about this? What First Amendment? And uh, Trump's team was taking sort of the opposite position of, you know, you can't create a, a contempt trap where anything I might do, publishing someone's home address and telling my followers to go there with torches might get me uh, in trouble. Uh, that would violate the First Amendment. So she comes down the middle. She says that the government's proposed order is too broad because it seeks to prevent him from talking about and releasing both sensitive information and regular routine information, stuff that's not sensitive. And she's not going to do that. On the other hand, she also says that it is appropriate to limit the dissemination of some information to protect the administration of justice and protect witnesses. And so I am going to put some limits here. And for instance, probably the most defensible and easy thing she did was say that they can't distribute personal information, uh, personal identifying information about people. That's saying like their home address, their social security number, their financial or medical records, that type of thing. Uh, she also says that she's going to agree that all transcripts and uh, interview uh, notes and reports of what people said are going to be treated as confidential. Because in her words, what do you think is going to happen if you publish those to his followers. She's concerned about the safety of those witnesses. Wait, but that's interesting, though, because wasn't that wasn't one of the key examples that you used as why there would be a First Amendment right implicated here, that in witness transcripts, you might discover that a witness testimony has been inconsistent, or that a witness said something that you can otherwise show was false, and that in order to convince the public of your innocence, that, that might be exactly the sort of information that you would seek to disseminate in order to, you know, pursue the valid purpose of making the argument that you are innocent of the crime. I, I understand, you know, the, the judge has completely valid concerns about how Trump might try to intimidate witnesses, but it sort of, it feels to me like you can't end the analysis there. It seems like that's exactly the sort of speech that, that Trump would have a valid constitutional interest in pursuing. I think that's right. I think the distinction is that she's talking about releasing entire reports and transcripts. I don't read her order to say that if you discovered some key thing they're lying about that you can't talk about that, although it could still rise to the level of harassing or intimidating a witness. Uh, but it, it's she seems to treat the entire document as the sensitive information, not necessarily some fact from within it, although it is a little vague and that's a problem. Yeah, so, I mean, it's, I mean, it sort of sounds like the same sort of fuzzy tests that happen around fair use and copyright. But it's like you can use a, a bit of it, but not all of it. And like if we wanted to decide whether it was too much, we have to like come in and weigh a bunch of factors that you might not be able to figure out ex ante. That was how it was weighed. Yes. So when it comes to federal judges in the First Amendment, I, I, I believe that we have to sort of recognize effort and baby steps. So merely <laughs> acknowledging that there are First Amendment issues surrounding protective orders is a, a, a step in the right direction, even though, as you point out, going into it just sort of illuminates how um, they treat it as this, this particular, this completely different 
zone where normal First Amendment concepts don't seem to apply. What she says is more or less that she doesn't care what's happening on the political side. She doesn't care how the order impacts his campaign or how his campaign uh, impacts the order, and she's not going to engage in that analysis, which is exactly, I think, the stance she, she should take. She says, though, that she has a obligation to protect the order orderly administration of justice and the witnesses, and that she's going to be looking at things with that in mind. So she does uh, say that, yes, you're not going to be able to publish those things, that she she uh, narrows the range of people who can look at sensitive documents. You know, Trump's team wants not only the attorneys of record, but everyone who might be assisting to be able to look at things. And she says, uh, in a pretty good line, you know, this is Washington, D.C. Everyone's a consultant and, you know, I'm not going to give you some <laughs> rule that allows, uh, you know, I think the subtext is that she doesn't want Sidney Powell looking at this stuff or the Sidney Powells in Trump's orbit. Yeah. One thing that I thought was interesting in this hearing uh, in Judge Shutkin addressing her desire for the defendant to not go make a bunch of inflammatory public statements is she said, you know, the more that any of the parties are making inflammatory statements in public, the greater interest there's going to be in proceeding quickly to trial. Um, because the more time that's going on, the more the jury pool might be tainted by that. I was I was interested by that because it's clear that Trump's desire is to delay this trial. Right. Um, and that's an interesting way of doing an implicit threat that doesn't involve saying you're going to put Trump in contempt or something like that. Well, exactly. And that that statement came in the context of the government saying they would like trial to start on January 2nd, which is remarkably fast. Mm -hmm. Uh, Your view is that would be implausibly fast, right? uh, Yeah. I mean, the government's saying that they don't think trial will take longer than four to six weeks, which if they can do it that way, good for them. But yes, I think that is implausibly fast. They also talked about, I think, 11.6 million pages of discovery, which is a lot. But yes, that is the type of exercise of judicial power that judges can use to get their way without putting people in jail, Mm -hmm. without being quite so nakedly coercive. Although, I mean, she does also say, although this again is, is not hearing about a gag order. It's not about past intimidation of witnesses or current intimidation, except as it uses discovery. But she does wind up saying, she says, regardless if whether statements are from discovery or not, if they have an effect on the administration of justice or intimidate witnesses, I will be scrutinizing them carefully. Mm -hmm. So this is a shot across the bow. And this is the way more temperate judges exercise their vast power. They kind of say in a vague sense, you better behave or else without necessarily uh, explicitly threatening jail or or yelling and, and screaming. So Trump's attorneys said, not completely unfairly, this is kind of a contempt trap. We don't know exactly what he can or can't say. They're kind of in a bind because the vast number of Uh, defendants don't want to be doing what Trump is doing. They don't want to be out there running their mouth about the case and about the witnesses. So it's kind of an unprecedented situation where you've got a client who wants to do that and who is not susceptible to control by you not to do it. And they are reasonably worried about what he's going to say. For instance, if, if this Truth Social post about Jeff Duncan that we just talked about, if that had been about a witness in the, um, 
DC case, I think that's well, I mean, exactly... Well, Jeff Duncan could be a witness in the DC, DC case. That is exactly the type of statement by Trump that I think would get him in trouble with Judge Chutkin. So I, I can appreciate how his attorneys are in a tough area. And the problem is that usually this type of analysis, applying the First Amendment to limits on defendant speech in a criminal case pre-trial, is not well developed because... Mm-hmm. The limits rarely get challenged, they rarely get litigated, and they certainly rarely get appealed to a higher court that might give some sort of extensive First Amendment analysis. And the reason they wouldn't get challenged is, you know, when when you are going on trial for a crime and you're before a judge and a judge makes a ruling on something that is not directly about whether or not you're going to go to prison, like you don't want to either take up time or take up the judge's irritation by appealing that sort of secondary matter when your key focus is on getting yourself acquitted in the trial? Well, exactly. Most people do not want to at least gratuitously irritate the judge. Maybe you want to irritate the judge a little over key issues that are about whether or not you go to jail. But you don't want to just, you know, be a Trump. You know, you, you don't want to just be belligerent for the sake of being belligerent because your followers love that you're belligerent. Uh, and as a result, most people don't challenge these things. And even more rarely does it get analyzed and appealed and that type of thing. As I look at people talking about this on Twitter, and I see a lot of liberals essentially salivating at the idea that, you know, Trump could be thrown in jail pre-trial uh, or held in contempt of court um, because of his misbehavior here. And, it, and it's interesting to me, and I, I use the term misbehavior broadly, because again, as you know, as, as I think we're getting into here, the question of whether Trump has a legal right to do the idiotic things he's doing, I think is, is an open one. But we're going to talk in a moment about Sam Bankman-Fried, who is going to jail pre-trial because he repeatedly violated the conditions of his bail. And I'm wondering, are we going to get in a position where in one of these cases, Donald Trump is going to do something where a different lower profile defendant would end up having his bail revoked? Are we going to end up in a position where some judge is faced with the, the choice of, you know, do I give him essentially special treatment or do I throw him in jail before he's been convicted of anything when he's a leading presidential candidate and sort of throw the maximum amount of fuel on the political fire around this dispute uh, in a way that is perhaps constitutionally suspect and that also does not get at the meat of the crimes for which he's been charged. I mean, I think, you know, it's it would be really nice to avoid detaining him pretrial. I don't think that would be a great thing for the country. I don't think it would be a great thing for our politics. Oh, are you going to um, get canceled on Twitter for saying that? But is, but is he like, will he have to get special treatment in order to avoid that pretrial detention. So I think we're already there. Um, I, I think that we see, and we're, we're previewing what we're about to say about Sam Bankman-Fried, but you know what Sam Bankman-Fried is getting jailed for is less than what Trump has already done in connection with this D.C. indictment in significant ways. So again, the thing about federal judges is, is some of them are very sensitive of their power and really feel that they've got to protect it and like, you know, if you if you defy me that I've got to protect my power or else what power do I have? Other judges more want to get to an orderly trial and to resolve the case without unnecessary drama. Judge Chutkin already strikes me as the latter type who doesn't feel like she has to put anyone in jail to soothe her ego because they're defying her or something like that. I think that's smart. I think that not being on the lookout to provoke First Amendment battles and appeals 
and things like that is is smart. She wants a prompt, orderly, no nonsense trial. And you could speculate about what about her background and experience leads her to be more like that. Uh, I mean, she came up through big law firms and the public defender's office as a, a woman uh, attorney in an industry that is fairly notoriously often sexist, particularly in big law firms, as a person of color, as a public defender. She's had to put up with a lot of bullshit, and that may sort of put her in a mindset of she wants to get to the real meat of the case and not worry so much about you know, Trump's kind of disrespect. She strikes me as someone who probably doesn't want to get provoked into a big dramatic fight. She doesn't have to be. Mm-hmm. I'm trying to imagine the concept of a no-nonsense trial here. Well, is that a is that a, a plausible? Like I'm, you know, I'm trying to like close my eyes and have a vision of a no-nonsense trial over this matter, and I'm having great difficulty with it. Well, a no-nonsense trial is one where the judge doesn't indulge or get involved in the nonsense. Mm -hmm. So the classic example is the O.J. Simpson trial, where the wide perception was that Judge Lance Ito sort of indulged the theatrics and the silly arguments and got deeply involved with them and all that type of thing. Judge Chutkin is already saying in this hearing, I'm not going to listen to your political bullshit. I'm not going to make decisions based on how it impacts the uh, campaign either way. So I think um, a a no-nonsense trial, certainly without nonsense from Trump is a bridge too far, but without nonsense from the judge is very achievable. And so far, she seems like a judge who can do that. Before we move on to Sam Bankman-Fried, I want to talk about one more uh, matter related to this investigation of Donald Trump, which is that we learned uh, in the past few days that special counsel Jack Smith got a search warrant for Donald Trump's Twitter information. And one of the terms of that search warrant was that Twitter was not to, allowed to tell anyone that they had received the warrant, that they were complying with the warrant. Uh, and Twitter objected to that. They wanted, among other things, to be able to tell former President Trump that they were handing over uh, information about his account to the investigators. And the court said, no, you're not allowed to do that. Twitter eventually complied. They got fined $350,000 because they were several days late complying. Um, And then they appealed uh, after the fact. And the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals upheld the trial court, said that the the search warrant was valid, and also said that the uh, prosecutors had good reason to believe that Donald Trump might tamper with evidence if he was informed of the existence of the search warrant. Um, They don't disclose what that evidence was. It's something that the, the government provided to the court that we don't get to see. Um, but so, I mean, it's, first of all, it's, it's interesting that Twitter really went to the mat on this in a way that, you know, if it's, if it's Russia or various other more authoritarian countries, they just take the information down if the, or do whatever the government tells them to do. That's a leading criticism right now. I mean, historically, Twitter has been good about taking steps to protect the First Amendment rights of its users. And, and I've been the beneficiary of that with some clients where Twitter has informed me that some litigant is trying to get their information. Uh, the criticism now is that they've stopped doing that. They become much more likely to yield to governments demanding information or demanding things taken down. And the speculation is this is Elon Musk's hand involved uh, in favor of Donald Trump. Um, The other side of that coin, though, is that uh, this thing where you're not allowed to tell the subject of the government process that you got it, 
is something that rarely gets challenged and rarely gets litigated, just like those pretrial conditions of, of bond that restrict speech. So Twitter's ultimate point is it isn't it a First Amendment uh, violation for us not to be able to inform our customer that you have a search warrant for our customer's stuff, uh, which, by the way, would have let Trump challenge the search warrant and make any legal arguments he wanted to, um, is a valid point. And what happens here is interesting. Twitter argues very aggressively that not only should we be able to do this, not only should we be able to tell Trump, but you shouldn't make us comply with a warrant at all. You shouldn't even litigate the validity of the warrant until you resolve that constitutional question. And the judge is having none of that. And that's what leads to the delay that gets Twitter sanctioned $350,000 for more or less defying a deadline. Uh, and I'm not sure how much of that is like deliberate screw you court defiance and how much it is the post Musk acquisition chaos at Twitter. I mean, this is a case where apparently uh, the government got the search warrant and submitted it to Twitter's law uh, legal process portal only to find that it was broken and it wasn't working. <laughs> uh, so, but another interesting thing happens here. Uh, you know, the, the trial court considered confidential declarations from the government. Here's why we think that Trump is going to destroy evidence or do mischief if he knows about this uh, and said, I'm, I'm upholding the term of uh, not telling Trump. Uh, after that happened, after Twitter appealed, the government comes in and says, okay, it's now public. You can let him know. And the government then says, this appeal is moot. It doesn't right. matter anymore because now Trump has been informed. So this gets us to an area of law that we sometimes see when we have situations like this where it's something that happens, but the chain of events prevents it from being appealed. Uh, the D.C. Circuit says that this is um, a situation and, and the phrase is capable of repetition but evading review. The concept is sometimes things happen in legal cases and they happen all the time, but because of circumstances, they are mooted and the legal question never gets appealed, so a court of appeal never gets to review it. So the D.C. Circuit says that's what's happening here. Uh, you did this order saying you can't reveal this. That has First Amendment implications, but as usual, eventually the person found out, so the appeal became moot. But we're, we're going to reach the First Amendment question because it's an important one. Of course, the circuit then immediately says, oh, yeah, you can totally tell people that that's uh, allowable under the First Amendment. It satisfies strict scrutiny because there's a compelling interest in targets of investigations not screwing around with evidence, and the trial court saw a secret document showing how that was going to happen. But that's an example of how a court could review things like pre-trial restrictions on defendant speech by invoking that doctrine. Mm -hmm. So now the record's more developed. I assume you're happy. I Well, I'm never completely <laughs> happy, but yes, uh, I'm more happy now that at least they reached the First Amendment issue, even though I think they gave it sort of short shrift when they did. Let's talk about Sam Bankman-Fried. Someone who, who had the, the line, Sam Bankman jailed? I think it was a parallel uh, development of the same line by multiple people, but Molly yes. White uh, beat us to it. <laughs> so Sam Bankman Freed in jail, Judge Lewis Kaplan, who has had a, a number of these cases, including the uh, E. Jean Carroll case, if I recall correctly. Uh, Judge Kaplan gets a lot of high – I think Judge Kaplan deserves the long-suffering uh, sobriquet, uh, so we'll give it to him. <laughs> 
Yeah, long-suffering Judge Lewis Kaplan uh, in the Southern District of New York uh, revoked Sam Bankman-Fried's bail. And so he had, the, the thing is, he was living in his parents' house and he was supposed to be there preparing for trial and, you know, not having secret communications with people, not trying to talk to witnesses in the case, not using his VPN to watch football for some reason when, you know, I believe they have cable in Palo Alto and you can just watch football on your television. His latest offense was that he leaked certain uh, journals of his ex-girlfriend and co-conspirator, Caroline Ellison, to the New York Times. Uh, and that uh, they basically, the government said this was done for a purpose of witness intimidation, that the only reason that you would put her journals in the press is to embarrass her and retaliate against her for cooperating in the prosecution against you, uh, and that this was a, a violation of the terms of his release and that he should therefore be held in jail pending the trial. Um, and so I think, I, you know, I, I was going to ask you this, but you've already answered it. It's not surprising that someone would be put back in jail for this sort of thing? Um, n- not in the context of someone with as many, let's put this guy in jail factors as Sam Bankman Freed. I mean, you have to put it in the context. Remember how surprised everyone got, was that he got bail and the government agreed to it in the first place because this is somebody accused of billions of dollars in fraud who had to be brought here by extradition from the Bahamas. Right. Uh, so it's sort of the opposite of the Donald Trump situation. Like Donald Trump is the lowest flight risk you could imagine. He has to stick around here in order to run for president. Yeah. Whereas Sam Bankman Freed, it's very easy to imagine that he has very large amounts of money in some sort of offshore account or cryptocurrency account and that he could go live in some non-extradition country, uh, you know, form his own new polycule there and then live out the rest of his life on the lam. Right. So he, he uh, this type of thing, I, my sense is Judge Kaplan always thought that the bail deal was pretty fishy. And Judge Kaplan seems to be a little more in the, mo- the mode of, if you defy me, I have to do something about it. I, I agree with you, Josh, that it, it's a little fishy whether or not Sam Bankman-Fried was actually trying to influence or harass or deter his ex from testifying as opposed to just sort of lashing out at her. I mean, Sam Bankman-Fried kind of strikes me as, you know, we've talked about how he's sort of a man-child, how he seems to have difficulty with human existence. He strikes me as the answer to the question, can an incel be in a polycule? Um, <laughs> and uh, I think- You just perfect. don't want to think about him having sex. No, I, I, I really don't. I, yeah. So- he does strike me as as somebody who seems more likely just to be doing it because he's pissed off at his ex and not actually in the mode of my ex is now cooperating against me in a multi-billion dollar fraud case. But I, I think that certainly- Is that a good defense though? Because I mean, if, it, if it's, I'm putting this information out to show that she is unreliable and that people should believe me and my statements, then, then that's- that's a, uh, an important speech interest that a defendant might have. Whereas if it's unrelated to the trial and it's like, I'm just putting it out because I'm mad at her, that doesn't seem like an important First Amendment interest to vindicate. First Amendment doesn't really make those distinctions so much. So just doing it because you're pissed uh, and pissy is, is an equal First Amendment value. I do think there are real First Amendment issues here. I think that he um, has an uphill battle simply because all the other factors are so bad for him. You know, the billions of dollars thing, the extradited from the Bahamas thing, all that type of thing. Uh, but yeah, I mean, the concept of being able to tell to some extent your side of the story when people are talking about you in the media, 
and being able to talk to the press when they're writing about the case, all that seems to have substantial First Amendment weight. The reason this may actually result in some useful case law from the Second Circuit about uh, First Amendment analysis in pretrial detention is that he's got money. So the vast majority of the time, this evades review. Uh, because first of all, people want to stay out of jail, so they abide by gag orders. And uh, second of all, it, it you know people wind up pleading guilty, which gives up all uh, appeals on issues like this. People don't have the money to hire attorneys to be aggressive on these issues and do em- emergency appeals of bail and things like that, and it just doesn't get done. Here, I think it's a legitimate issue. I do think that the circuit winds up keeping him in jail and affirming Judge Kaplan because there's sort of a a pattern of things where he used a VPN. And and the reason that's an issue is it allows him to to do things on the internet without detection. Um, He reaches out to an FTX executive who's a potential witness. And now he's, you know, dumping all this information about one of the most important witnesses against him. I suspect it gets affirmed by the Second Circuit, but I think we might get some useful analysis of how the First Amendment applies to pretrial gag orders. So he's supposed to go on trial in a couple of months. Um, and when you said Judge Kaplan always seemed to think that the the bail was a little bit fishy here, to rewind and you know remind people why Judge Kaplan gave him bail in the first place was because the government supported it initially. The, the government eventually changed its mind and decided, no, they want him held in jail. But I assume the reason the government wanted him out is that they thought it was going to be easier for both sides to prepare for trial uh, if he was out of jail and it would be easier to, for him to interface with his lawyers than if he was awaiting trial in jail. Yeah, we went through this what well, seems like years ago, but I think was only a couple of months ago, <laughs> where the reason I think they agreed to bail, the government did, is that it was probably part of the deal to get him to waive extradition and come back more quickly from the Bahamas. They thought that he's a dumb shit who's going to say things while he's out on bail. It's going to make our case stronger. And because it's easier and quicker for someone to prepare for trial, particularly in a white collar complex case, when they're out. Uh, it is hideously difficult to do anything with a client who is in custody, uh, particularly look at documents and complex analysis of documents and that type of thing. Because normally in a complex white collar case, Josh, I am sending my clients, uh, you know, gigabytes of data to go through so that we can discuss and talk, you know, why did you say this in the email? What's the significance of this document? All of that. Can't do that with someone in jail and you have to sit there and go through it with them. So one thing Judge Kaplan did here that's significant is he he was amenable to asking uh, that Bankman Freed be designated someplace for custody where there's more attorney contact. And he was even amenable to a very unusual order allowing Bankman Freed to be taken to his attorney's offices uh, under heavy, heavy security to meet with them there. And they were also looking for a facility where he'd be able to have a laptop. Yeah, exactly. And so they were talking about that they might send him somewhere up in Putnam County, north of New York City. But then they they ended up sending him to the MDC uh, in Brooklyn, which is a, a much closer to the courthouse, but is also, I, I, I understand, an especially horrible federal detention facility. That's what I've heard, too. And part of what may be happening here is the the judge can say what the judge wants to say, but the United States Bureau of Prisons and the U.S. Marshals do what they want. So 
the judge has to get a lot more involved and a lot more directive to get a specific result of getting designated to a particular place. Uh, and a lot of the time, there's a lot of resistance from uh, the marshals and bureau of prisons and, and all those people. Let's talk about Rudy Giuliani. <laughs> Rudy is being sued for defamation by two Georgia election workers about whom he made some elaborate and completely false claims about their involvement in an election fraud conspiracy that resulted in them being harassed in, in various extremely unpleasant ways. And they've sued him for defamation. And he has now twice tried to make a stipulation in this case, which is before long-suffering federal judge Beryl Howell down in Washington, D.C. This, this is someone we used to talk about fairly often on All the President's Lawyers. We haven't talked very much about Beryl Howell lately, but she's, she's back with, with this fun case. She's still suffering. She's still suffering. Um, and the stipulation was weird because basically he's trying to admit to certain things about how he defamed them in order to avoid having to comply with a, an expensive or unpleasant discovery process. Say, okay, okay, I admit X, Y, and Z. But then he keeps tarting up the order with all this stuff that it's caveats it. And it's like, well, I admit this, but not really, or I admit this, but I preserve the issue for appeal. Uh, and Judge Howell has issued this order that basically, it's it's a few hundred words, but it more says, or less says, what the fuck is this? <laughs> yes. So Rudy doesn't want to comply with discovery, doesn't want to respond to a motion accusing him of not complying with discovery. And basically wants a universe where he can just talk about the First Amendment implications of the case without actually participating in the case. So he he puts in this comically bad stipulation that says, as you said, well, what if I agreed that to the extent the things I said in there weren't protected by the First Amendment, they were false, which is not a stipulation. It's not doing anything. And so how, Judge Howell comes out with his order saying basically, and my favorite part is, you know, kind of first pointing out with uh, the, the the brutal sick that you spelled Nola Contendere wrong. Yeah, it says, um, it says Noel Contendra. Yes. Is what it says. At, at the top of both versions of Rudy's order, even after the judge pointed out that he had misspelled that, he refiled it with certain changes that both, you know, didn't satisfy what she was looking for and that didn't even fix that misspelling. Many lawyers would rather be sent to federal prison than to get a sick from a federal judge on their work product. <laughs> uh, she basically says that this is uh, full of seemingly incongruous and certainly puzzling caveats is the way she puts it. And she says, look, either you stipulate that you have the equivalent of a default judgment against you that that liability is established, you've given up, or you come in, you answer these motions, and you explain to me what you're going to do. So Rudy responds in very Rudy fashion with a new stipulation, which I need to point out still misspells nulla contendere. Uh, <laughs> I know I'm a terrible snotty person to laugh at that so much, but that's just how God made me. Um, <laughs> and, and he basically says, okay, you want a default judgment. Here's something that say, I, I think it's like a default judgment, except I still get to appeal everything and challenge everything. How about that, judge? So <laughs> he, he's going to have to appear in front of her tomorrow, I believe, Tuesday the 15th. And, uh, it is not going to go well for him. <laughs> <laughs> But so what is it if it doesn't go well for it? What does that mean? Like, what are going to be the practical consequences of him looking like an idiot in this hearing before Judge Howell? Well, she's going to probably uh, she may give him a little more time, but she's going to grant the motions to compel. She could wind up 
in effect saying, okay, you're now you're genuinely in default because you're not answering discovery. Uh, there may be sanctions, but he is not going to get away with this thing where I'm not going to comply with the case and I'm going to do a pretend stipulation that actually allows me to contest everything. He just doesn't get to do that. Let's talk about Hunter Biden. So we talked about that uh, proceeding before Judge Mary Ellen Noreka in Delaware uh, a few weeks ago now where the government and Hunter Biden appeared together trying to get his plea deal accepted and the judge correctly pointed out that there were certain vague aspects of the plea agreement and she sussed out that the defense and the prosecution didn't even agree about what the plea agreement meant. Right. And so that's why she declined the agreement. And I'd note that the way a lot of Republicans have talked about this is it's like that the judge rejected the agreement for being too lenient or something, but that's that's not why she re- she wouldn't accept it. She wouldn't accept it because it, it wasn't even clear what it meant. Um, and so for a while, uh, the two parties were discussing and trying to figure out whether they could come up with a new, clearer more specific version of the plea agreement. And then it turns out they can't. Right. Uh, the government made a motion to the court basically saying, we're at an impasse on this. We can't reach agreement on a plea. We're going to have to go to trial. And so a couple other things happened. One is that Attorney General Merrick Garland made David Weiss, the U.S. attorney for Delaware, made him into a special counsel so that he can bring charges somewhere other than Delaware. And he told the court in Delaware, I need you to dismiss this because I need to charge it somewhere else because these offenses, they actually happened in Washington, D.C. or Los Angeles. And we could have done the plea here in Delaware, but we can't do a trial here because the defendant would be able to validly say you tried it in the wrong place. So does this mean we're going to have a criminal trial of Hunter Biden? It could. So a couple of things are happening here. Remember, there was a big dispute. And like you said, some Republicans chose to portray this as, you know, Trump judge uh, pierces the illegitimate corrupt sweetheart deal. And all this is, although as you you pointed out, Josh, although this was a judge appointed by Trump, it was by recommendation and deal with the state's Democratic senators. It was actually a, a fairly Democratic judge, a person with a Democratic background. She was a registered Democrat. Right. So th- this was not like a, a Trump judge uh, uncovering a plot. This was a federal judge doing it the right way, figuring out there's not a meeting of the minds. And um, this result tends, I think, to um, confirm what I thought, which is that genuinely there wasn't a meeting of the minds about the extent of the non-prosecution promise Hunter Biden was getting here, whether it included not prosecuting him for any um, uh, Foreign Agent Registration Act violations relating to how he earned his money. And once that became clear, they couldn't come up with a deal that that put that in writing. And that's why this happened. So now um, Weiss has to charge it for real. Before he filed um, informations pursuant to a plea agreement uh, in what would be the wrong venue, for the claims. You can only do that if the person is waiving all those rights and agreeing to plead guilty to those. Now that they're not, uh, you have to ask the court to dismiss it and you've got to actually file it. Now the questions are, where is he going to file them? And him being now named special counsel allows him to file them anywhere, as opposed to having to go through local U.S. attorneys and get them to do it. Uh, And what is it going to be? Because why says very plainly, in his request to dismiss that now he's going to have to decide what charges go in there. And that's a significant question, Josh, because remember, um, Hunter Biden got charged with tax misdemeanors 
uh, it's possible he could get charged with tax felonies, with tax evasion rather than failure to file. Depends on how confident they are in their case. So him agreeing to plead guilty might have been part of uh, Weiss's decision to give him misdemeanors on those. It's not certain, but it's a possibility. Another big question we're going to see is now that there's no plea agreement, is Weiss going to charge this gun count that so rarely gets prosecuted? Remember, this is the one for being an addict uh, or habitual user of illegal drugs in possession of a firearm. And we talked before about how it's very rarely charged. It's usually charged in special situations in connection with other things. And add to that now that the Fifth Circuit has just decided that it's unconstitutional and struck it down. So uh, I'm not sure that Weiss is going to charge the gun charge as as a separate indictment, particularly if it has to be in a different venue than the tax charges that he selects. So th- this is throwing it all open. I think we are going to have an indictment. I-, I think that Hunter Biden may still plead guilty to it, but it's going to be without the sort of non-prosecution promises that he's looking for. And it could even be without a plea agreement. Uh, so we're going to have to see what gets charged before we know a lot more about that. One thing about the gun charges, didn't he buy the gun in Delaware? If they were going to bring the gun charge, wouldn't they bring it in Delaware? So they could. It also depends on, you know, he filed a, uh, he filed a document when he bought the gun and there, there's a false statement connection with that, that can be charged where that was done. And if he possessed the gun, someplace other than Delaware, then it could be charged where he possessed it. So there's some uh, leeway there about where that charge could be. But so I guess that because he was never charged with that, they don't need the court to dismiss that charge. So they wouldn't have addressed the geographic issue with the gun or filing with the court. Okay. Correct. Do you have a sense of where this case is going to end up? I mean, you know, selfishly for us, I would prefer to see it charged in Los Angeles. But do you do you, do you have a sense of when they – it sounds like there's a pattern of events that happen in a lot of different places. Josh, do they just get to – I have a job. I can't just like go to court to watch stuff. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I have no idea. I, I think mm-hmm. it's probably going to be a combination of uh, uh, efficiency – and, you know, if Weiss is thinking like a prosecutor, then he's going to want to think about charging at some place that is more sympathetic to uh, prosecutors going after Hunter Biden and less sympathetic to Biden, uh, exactly the way you would think that uh, Jack Smith is thinking about that. So um, I don't know that that's Los Angeles. Well, I mean, I think L.A. obviously is a heavily Democratic jurisdiction. I sort of imagine that if you tried it far away from Washington, D.C., you might get a jury that's more inclined to think about this more as a garden variety tax evasion case. Exactly. And less as a, as a case that's fundamentally political. I think so, too. Also, you don't want to charge it in multiple places because that's just a logistics nightmare and uh, takes a lot more time and, and money. That's just for Michael Avenatti. <laughs> Um, we also, by the way, got a couple of listeners who wrote in because we talked when we talked about this a few weeks ago and we were sort of puzzling over how the minds had failed to meet here. How did both the prosecution and the defense end up in court without a clear understanding of what their the plea agreement they wanted to prove meant? We got a couple of people writing in in defense of Hunter's attorneys 
basically talking about how, you know, the, the DOJ clearly screwed up here and drafted an agreement that potentially gave Hunter uh, a promise of non-prosecution for a broad set of offenses beyond tax crimes that the DOJ likely never intended to offer not to prosecute him for, that they wanted to reserve the right to prosecute him for violating the Foreign Agents Registration Act or various other things. But if you're the defense attorney and you receive that draft and you realize that it's poorly drafted in that way and that you will later be able to go into court and say, well, gee, this sure looks like it. It says that they're not going to prosecute our client for these other things. Presumably what you want to do is try to go and get that plea agreement approved as expeditiously as possible. But if you go to the government and say, hey, did you mean to say this? The government will say, oh, no, no, I didn't mean to say that here. I'm you know, withdrawing that offer. Here's the new offer. Um, and so that that it would have made sense for Hunter's attorneys to basically go into court, try and finesse the thing and get the thing signed off on, and that that might have succeeded if Judge Noreka had not been so attentive to detail. Does that sound right to you? I guess it's possible. Uh, this is something where the way individual criminal defense attorneys think about things and think about how to deal with their clients and how to, how to assess risk probably determines whether or not they'd use a strategy like that. I don't like ambiguity in legal documents and I don't like deliberately courting ambiguity. And even though ambiguity in a plea agreement is supposed to be construed against the government, I think my risk assessment would be that that's too dangerous a strategy and um, that, uh, you know, it, it's not going to work. I, I could see an experienced criminal defense attorney having a different take on that and thinking, why not try? Because um, if nothing else, we're not going to get an explicit guarantee of uh, non-prosecution for, say, FARA cases. So why not have a shot at getting an ambiguous possible one? Uh, but then you you got to make sure the client understands that, understands what's going on, and it, and it very much fights against lawyers' general inclination not to allow ambiguity into to plea agreements. So uh, it's I think different lawyers are going to give you different answers on that. We also got another question that I that I think is a good one that I wanted to clear up, and that was someone wrote and asked, uh, if a plea deal falls apart and the defendant was going to plead guilty, can the prosecution team use that as evidence in trial after the deal falls apart? Um, the answer is generally no. So uh, the plea deal is not a plea deal until – the judge accepts it and it's until the client goes through the sort of faintly ritualistic uh, long response to, to questions in open court under oath. Uh, you can't use that stuff against the defendant under normal circumstances or there are rare exceptions. And this kind of falls into a fairly broad concept in law that in general – Certain types of bargaining is not admissible to show admissibility uh, to show liability. So there's a, a rule of evidence that basically, Josh, if you've sued me for something, and I say, Josh, um, I'll pay you ten thousand dollars to settle this case, that's not admissible to show that I'm liable. That's a basic legal concept, and I think the um, the concept about plea bargaining in criminal cases is similar and grows out of the, some of the same ideas. But the answer is almost never is that admissible. And th and that's even though Hunter actually did go through some of that ritualistic pleading in Judge Noreka's court. I mean, he was there under oath saying, yes, I'm guilty of these offenses. Uh, he did not go through nearly enough. 
Okay. So um, the ritual is, was uh, interrupted midstream before the uh, <laughs> sacral elements could adhere. <laughs> uh, finally this week, I want to talk about the Mark Hotel. The Mark Hotel is a very fancy hotel on the Upper West Side of Manhattan, at 77th and Madison. Very, very nice place. R- really nice restaurant and bar, uh, serene, peaceful. Um, there's this little shit from a rich family named Theodore Weintraub. Uh, his father is a prominent specialist physician. Uh, they live very close to the Mark, which is, you know, the, it's the fancy part of the, of the Upper East Side, the part really close to Central Park. And so, you know, as I say, the Mark's a very fancy hotel. When, when Theodore was in 2019, when he was 17 years old, he had a fake ID, which is normal for a teenager. And he went and tried to use his fake ID at the bar at the Mark, which is not normal. Um, and so the Mark denied to sell him drinks as he repeatedly tried. Ultimately, they ended up banning him from the hotel. Um, then quite embarrassingly, he ends up back at the hotel with his family for dinner, and they refuse to seat his family because he's banned from the hotel, which is clearly a surprise to his parents. Um, and so first he, he pleads to be admitted back into the mark, and then when they won't do, allow that, he starts screaming that the hotel is anti-Semitic. Um, and so anyway, he gets thrown out of the mark. And then more recently, he has come back with some associates, possibly on his payroll, but in any case, he's, he's been protesting in front of the mark, along with some other people, saying things like that the mark denies the Holocaust, uh, that the mark supported Jeffrey Epstein. And I would note the hotel says that even, even though Epstein lived near the hotel, he never stayed at the hotel, which kind of makes sense. Why would you stay at a hotel around the corner from your townhouse? But so they, he made these various allegations against the mark that could conceivably be quite bad for business. He, he and his associates also got into an altercation with Drake when Drake was staying at the hotel in July, they tried to physically prevent Drake from re-entering the hotel, and one of one of Mr. Weintraub's associates got punched by Drake's fans when this happened. And so, anyway, the, it's clearly an annoyance for the hotel and the employees of the hotel. Uh, you had one employee of the hotel telling the New York Times that she wished that Mr. Weintraub would spend his time and money on other pursuits. Anyway, the hotel got fed up. They finally sued Theodore Weintraub. Um, and they, they sought and obtained a restraining order. They're suing him for defamation, but, you know, pending the adjudication of that matter and whether the mark really denies the Holocaust and all those sorts of things. They sought and obtained an order from a judge telling Theodore Weintraub that he's not to protest in, fr- in front of the hotel at night. Um, and also that he is not allowed to make certain specific claims about the hotel, uh, like that it, uh, like that it denies the Holocaust. Um, or that it's pro-sexual so- assault. Yes. Yeah, he's not allowed to say any of those things. And so this this order, on one level, it's completely understandable. Like, if this shit was in my courtroom, I would definitely tell him to, to shut the fuck up. Um, but it's... The, <laughs> It is a prior restraint. A judge is not allowed to just tell even the most obnoxious rich kid that he's not allowed to claim that a hotel denies the Holocaust. Right. Pre-trial. So... First of all, I, I uh, join the opinion to the extent it indicates that the kid is a little shit uh, who needs to be uh, smacked up the side of the head with a big dose of life. Um, beyond that, absolutely, the temporary restraining order is sort of wantonly unconstitutional in a way that they often are. So this is an illustration of why you have an adversarial system, because as far as I can piece out here um this hearing didn't have uh, the little shit in question or any of his family's lawyers there to oppose it instead the judge 
issued it and uh, now has set a hearing on a preliminary injunction where the family's lawyers can show up and, and do whatever they're going to do. That often results in First Amendment atrocities uh, happening. Second of all, judges whose courtroom handles a lot of TRO matters are sort of notorious for initially issuing these orders that, that are First Amendment catastrophes until someone said, oh, judge, you know, there's a constitution and everything. And they said, oh, yeah, OK, well, I'm going to narrow it a little bit. This is a thing <laughs> that happens all the time. So you mentioned the key idea here, which is prior restraint, which is that under the First Amendment generally, the idea is that you can get sued and ordered to pay money for defaming people, but you cannot be ordered in advance not to defame people. You can't be told you can't say X. You can only be punished for saying X after the fact. There's some narrow exceptions where if they take the kid to a jury trial and they get a jury to say the Mark Hotel does not condone or sanction the Holocaust, that was a false statement, we're issuing a judgment against you, <laughs> um, then you could prevent him from saying that again after you've gone through the full due process. Other than that, you can't do this. You certainly can't do what the judge did here, which is to in addition to saying you're not allowed to say that the uh, Mark uh, denies the Holocaust or they supported Epstein or that they're, uh, this is my favorite part, quote, an agent of infectious diseases, unquote, the judge issues this <laughs> catch-all part that says you, you can't make any knowingly false statements against the Mark Hotel. So there you've got prior restraint and ambiguity and vagueness uh, all in once. It's just, it's just like blatantly circus style unconstitutional. But this happens all the time with this TRO situations where one party goes in and gets it from a judge without the other party there to remind the judge that, you know, prior restraint exists. So I assume this, this order is not going to hold. But if they end up at trial, this little shit will be liable for damages to the Mark Hotel, right? Potentially. The question is going to be, uh, first of all, when this sort of notorious overt little shit is in the street in front of your hotel saying that they deny the Holocaust, would a reasonable person consume that as being little shit who forgets he's not on the internet and he's just shit talking, it's not literal, or would they consume it as a literal false statement of fact? Uh, then you'd have to ask, has the little shit been so denied an adequate education by lenient parents that he doesn't really understand whether or not it's factually accurate <laughs> that they deny the Holocaust and therefore he doesn't have the requisite mental state. And then the I'm a little shit defense. Right. I assume it, that's one of the defenses that the that attorneys don't like having to make in court. It is. And then you've got the question of whether the Mark Hotel can uh, show damages. Uh, I mean, frankly, I'm of all the things you said, uh, the thing that most inclines me to go there is that someone in Drake's entourage punched one of the kid's friends. That's what most attracts me there. So I, <laughs> I don't know if they can show actual damages. Well, isn't this defamation per se? Well, defamation per se only gets you nominal damages. So like a right. dollar. You still have to – it just <laughs> it relieves you of the burden of pleading it. It doesn't relieve you of actually having to convince a jury to give you money. So mm -hmm. – and usually the way rich little assholes like this get dealt with is that daddy's lawyers show up and find a way to make it all go away as opposed to spending a hundred times more of daddy's money to vindicate the little shit's right to, uh, to say shit in the street. 
So this is probably heading for a settlement is what you're saying. Yes. Uh, and, you know, I, I do not think the little shit is heading to college, although I could be wrong. Uh, before we go uh, this week, I have a, a couple of corrections I want to do from last week's show. First of all, we, t- we talked about Harvard Business School professor Francesca Gino, uh, who is suing Harvard and certain other psychologists who accused her of research dishonesty. Uh, I mistakenly said that she had been fired. Uh, she has been suspended without pay for two years, uh, and the university is also beginning a process that could end up revoking her tenure. Although we, we got a, a very useful note from Brandon Kingdollar, who is the managing editor of the Harvard Crimson, the student newspaper at Harvard. First of all, it's a great great name. But so, uh, as he points out, Harvard has actually uh, never revoked a professor's tenure. Now, there's been a number of situations where a professor is in very serious trouble and they end up resigning from their tenured position without actually going through that process. And so, it, you know, it, it, it certainly looks like the thing that they've started doing with Francesca Gino is intended to end with her no longer being a professor at HBS. Uh, and she's not, being, she's not currently on the payroll at HBS, but it's, it's not true that she's been fired. And, you know, conceivably, she could end up back teaching at Harvard at some point in the future. Right. Harvard's attitude is you can be responsible for starting the Vietnam War, but not for research misconduct. <laughs> and then a, a related error is that uh, we talked about Francesca Gino being being Italian and not raising that as a as as an argument for why she'd been discriminated against. I want I want to know, first of all when I say she's Italian, I mean like born and raised in Italy, Italian, not like a I'm from Queens, Italian. Um, but you you noted uh, the the use of the Italian defense by the Cuomo family. You attributed it to Mario Cuomo. I think you meant to attribute that to to Andrew or Chris Cuomo. There are some fairly wounded fans of the father pointing out that, you know, whatever it is that that his his little shit sons did, you know, like the, you know, you can't blame Dr. Weintraub for whatever Theodore is up to, right? Well, maybe it, you can. it was Andrew who raised the, I am not a sexual harasser, I'm just Italian. In my defense, <laughs> I feel that Mario Cuomo bears a, a level of moral responsibility for raising a kid like that, so... <laughs> Anyway, we, uh, we regret the errors. Uh, thank you very much, everyone, for listening, and we will be back. And I strongly suspect next time we're talking to you, it will be about certain charges brought in Georgia. Thanks for talking to me this week. Thank you, Josh. Serious Trouble is created and produced by Very Serious Media. That's me and Sarah Fay. Jennifer Swadek mixed this episode. Our theme music is by Joshua Mosier. Thanks for listening, and we'll be back with more soon. See you next time. <laughs> 